Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because it'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. Previously on the Ozark Podcast. Let's be scared of a wildfire, or we could do a controlled fire yeah. and pre- like prevent all of our, our stuff burning. Right. Yeah, so same, so right, imagine an Ozark's landscape where we can get every landowner in... Let's say we could get every landowner in Sharp County yeah. to burn off everything around their homestead every October. And then December 1st, let's just go light the whole county on fire and see what happens. <laughs> we won't hurt any property. We yeah, won't hurt any people. Oh, I know. <laughs> let's Crazy. set it all on fire. But I mean, there, there's, there's, there's real discussions about like, okay, how can we get a landscape level firewise community where, where we could actually have landscape level fire like that? Like that. Right. That's a size of fire that was not uncommon historically in the state. That's I mean, crazy. And, and how impactful would that be for just one county? If if everyone in one area kind of came together and were like, "Yes, let's let's do this," would that be like would that have a huge impact, or would that just be kind of like a small step to to getting back to? It, it could be hugely impactful. You're listening to the Ozark Podcast, presented by Inland. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kyle Lee. Could be hugely impactful. And that's okay. that's the type of like large-scale thinking that like it's going to take us decades to if we ever can get there yeah. to get people that accepting of being able to do that but that's what that's what they're trying to do in places in nebraska like we're going to have everybody burn their places off in the fall and that way we can have landscape level fires in the winter and nobody's going to lose anything mm-hmm. um i feel like my neighbors would be really concerned if i just started lighting my yard on fire right now yeah, yeah. they'd so, be like dude what are you doing so and going again, so, forward how, how does that how, how does that affect the quail population going forward and and what have you guys found right so you know, today, like I mentioned earlier, we, we're, we're working within targeted areas where we can make the best use of the dollars that we have, right? So, like, conservation in this state, conservation in this country is relatively well-funded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's, not, it's not a lot of money. It really is. It's, it's well-funded compared to other places, but it's still not, it's not enough money to get where we need to get with a lot of things. So... We have to we have to do things in a targeted way to be effective on any kind of a landscape level. So, our hope, our best hope for for trying to bring quail back in a meaningful way in the state of Arkansas. And this is sad, and and I understand that this is a sad thing to to think about or say, but like we're a long ways from being able to restore quail at a statewide level, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it it we've. We've gone from a statewide quail population in the 60s to where we are now over a period of 80 or 60 years. We're, we're not going to bring quail back in, in five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, it took us six years to get here. Yeah. It's going to take us a long time to get back. And, and you getting s- back is always harder than trying to maintain something yeah. that's already good, right? When you say restore, you're talking about restoring to the point 
of populations in like the 60s? Um, I'm talking about restoring to the point of sustainable quail numbers. Okay. Sustainable oh, quail wow. populations. So sustainable in the sense of like that landscape has enough habitat in that in that given area to sustain a population of quail according to our models, you know, for the next hundred years. That's mm-hmm. that's our definition of sustainability in the wildlife world. Okay. Um and in order to do that, we have to have within a Within a 10,000-acre landscape, we need basically 2,000 acres of that to be usable quail habitat. So 20%. Roughly. Okay. Um, mm. And, and that's, that's what's been modeled for the most part. And, then, you know, there's other stuff that's looked at. It's like, okay, well, in the 6, 000, on the 6,000-acre area, we need 1,500 acres of it to have a sustainable quail population. As, those, as the acreage amounts go down... Um, the percentage of that of the whole landscape goes up to be able to have a sustainable quail population. So, you know, our our goals in the way that the Game and Fish Commission here is approaching quail at the moment for the past five years in NRCSO, quail forever came into the state really five years ago. We had some chapters that started here first. Then I moved down here. I was the first biologist with quail forever in the state, and then I hired all the staff that we have now. Yeah. Um, Working Lands for Wildlife, one of our initiatives through NRCS, and it's largely in partnership with state agencies, um, rolled out. And so the Game and Fish Commission and NRCS wanted to roll out this Working Lands for Wildlife for Bob White Quail. Quail Forever has been a partner in that and other places. We wanted to make sure we were a partner at the table with that here and help deliver that program. In order to do that, with those limited dollars that we have, we are targeting focal landscapes across the state. We have focal landscapes for quail restoration. Those can be larger, multi-county level areas. But then within those focal landscapes, we have actual like focal areas. Hmm. So here in the state, we have several focal areas. So the Game and Fish Commission has designated several WMAs as quail focal WMAs. Hmm. Um, and then there's some non-WMA public lands like Pea Ridge is a quail focal area in the mm-hmm. state. And then that'd be like the battlefield, the battlefield, yes, public so, land up there. Pea Ridge National Military Park is yep. a quail, and they've been doing a, a lot of great habitat restoration. And then you know, and there's a neat story behind that whole park. That's really probably an entire podcast episode. Oh, yeah. So if you wanted to do that, yeah, they've been they're managing that as a national military park. Their goal is to manage that park the way the landscape looked during that battle, oh, right? Oh, cool. So yeah. same problem that that whole area had grown up to a whole bunch of trees, like. That whole area was much more open. By the time that battle happened, there was small crop fields, hay meadows that were native, open woodlands and stuff like that. Now it's all very grown up. They had thousand, you know, a thousand acres of almost solid cedar trees that yeah. had grown up that had been open fields. So yeah. they're managing their landscape to look more historically accurate for when that battle occurred, which just happens to be creating quality habitat for quail. <laughs> right. So there's good numbers of quail on the on the battlefield park. Can you, can they can people hunt up there? No, so that okay. being being owned by the Park Service and, and the way you know that is an interpretive site, like that's not open to hunting. Okay, but as a quail focal area, what we've done with that program is we have a five mile buffer was around gonna, I was the about per- to ask that around the perimeter of that park, and we try to target doing work with landowners within that five mile buffer. Ah, okay, so we have we have that public land. Yep. 
in that case, not not huntable, but we have that public land that's doing quail restoration and has a quail population on it. How many acres is that, real quick? I don't know how many acres. Like a couple hundred, a couple thousand. No, it's I bet th- you could look thousands. on X. Okay. Uh, you can oh, yeah, you can. Keep going. I, so around that, around Pea Ridge National Military Park, you know, we have that five-mile buffer, and we try to target work with those landowners in that five-mile buffer, like doing workshops in that area, mm-hmm. sending, you know, flyers and mailers to encourage producers to come talk to us. It's 4,200 acres. Yeah. So 4,214. Gotcha. So and in that area, that's a... That's, that's a, cool. That's a neat mixed landscape, right? So like... Yeah. Pea Ridge is cool. Pea Ridge is very cool. Yeah. And there's a good mixture of woodlands... And open open fields. It's a lot like here. I th- I feel like Tony, you know, out towards Siloam, a little mix of prairie lands and mm-hmm. a little flatter. But Pea Ridge definitely is more topography, more topography, and more more woods. It's it's getting more into the 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 Ozark foothills part of. Yeah, out here definitely historically would have been more vastly prairie and savanna. Yeah, right. That would have been a mixture of prairie, savanna, and then the wooded woodland hillsides. And mm-hmm. the park has some neat glades in it. You know, rock outcroppings uh-huh. that would have been. It would have been more herbaceous, but that whole area is a little bit more indicative of, you know, a typical place that you could zoom in and find about that much open ground versus woods in a lot of the Ozarks, right? Yeah. So, and a lot of it's not crop, it's it's pasture and, and hayland and, and woods. Mm-hmm. Most of that's unmanaged, most of the pasture and hayland is fescue. Mm-hmm. Um, the woods is largely, we don't cut a lot of trees out of there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, we There's not a lot of prescribed fire in the landscape, just like everywhere else in the Ozarks, so... We target landowners within that five-mile buffer with the point being we know, so a lot of our quail research shows like nine kilometers is about the distance. If we if we can get enough landscape within nine kilometers, which happens to be five miles. Okay, I was about to say, help, um, help an American out here, brother. <laughs> yeah, with about nine kilometers, if we get enough habitat within that landscape, that's the landscape scale at which we can effectively create enough habitat to to get a sustainable local population on that landscape level. Mm. That's smart because you're, you're using something that's already basically being managed, not necessarily for quail, but to imitate what the landscape would have been like years and years ago when quail would have been thriving in, in, a popu- like in an area like that. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you're basically expanding that area by targeting specific private landowners around it. Exactly. And we're doing the same thing. So, you know, with, with our programs... And and we do try to specifically target those areas, and we have high, medium, and low areas for for the funding for that program. And so those those high, medium, and low areas, those priority areas like that one, might change over time. So for the past four years, we've had a lot of work done in the high priority area around Harold E. Alexander, uh, Spring River WMA over there okay. in north in the northeast Ozarks over of by Arkansas. Right. Yep. So they've done a lot of like woodland, glade, savanna restoration on that area, that area is getting a better population of quail. The game and fish quail emphasis areas, the quail WMAs, are also still closed to hunting because we only have a handful of them in the state that are managing like that. And that would be a case where, okay, we're, we're telling people, yes, we're managing this area for quail. It would it would be possible for hunters to come in and... yeah. You know, hunt, hunt those out. So if you if everyone came in and hunted, you'd basically you could and that might change in the future. Run you the know, risk of- that could change in the future. But for now, for the for the early days of trying to restore that, so some of these WMAs that have been designated quail WMAs didn't necessarily have a lot of quail five six years ago either. But we're yeah. doing targeted work. The state agency is doing a lot of targeted work on those public lands WMAs 
for Quail, and then using state and NRCS dollars, we're doing targeted work on the private landowners within five miles around those mm. to try to build out that core of quality habitat and that core population of quail within that landscape. Mm, got it. And then we have Man. Fulton and Sharp County. We've designated, we had a lot of landowners that for the past 20 years through programs have shown an interest in quail conservation. Mm-hmm. So we've drawn out a, a private lands focal area for quail for quail that gets high priority in that program as well. So they're not all focused on public lands. We have that private lands quail focal area in Fulton and Sharp County that's in the program. Uh, we have another one in Prairie County. So that northeastern, nor- northwestern part of Prairie County out in the Delta, that's actually not as much crop ground. It gets a little more rolling hills. Okay. It's kind of the same thing. Um, it's more pasture and hayland. So our working lands for wildlife program here. And then we have some down in, in the southern, in southern Arkansas too. Mm-hmm. So our working lands for wildlife program for quail through NRCS is geared towards, like it says, working land. So here and, and across the range, it means a couple of things, but here in Arkansas, for sure, we, we, we advocate for both sides of that. We have working lands in terms of we're encouraging producers to convert uh, pasture and hayland that's non-native grasses to native grasses, so they're more profitable and we're creating wildlife habitat like I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also the pine or oak savanna part of the Working Lands for Wildlife Quail initiative as well. So anytime we're working in... in Woodlands, but specifically in the in the more piney woods areas of the state, where we can do management while you know that that landowner still has pine production on their property, we can manage it in a way to still have pine production, but also increase the usability of that pine stand for quail habitat as well. So maybe a little bit heavier thinning, more prescribed fire if they're doing it at all, right? Trying to do more, or at least you know start doing more burning again, which again used to be a much more common practice in South Arkansas in the pine in the piney woods and yeah, people forget today. how smart the Indians were. <clears throat> yeah. 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 Well and the white the white man came in and yeah. took it over. You got no. a little Indian blood in you, don't I, you? Yeah, I'm Cherokee. <laughs> there you go. I'm very that's why I can say that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and it's funny how how short some of our memories can be for, oh, man, for landscape amazing. level changes. And you know, I'll I'll start well, we're talking about the piney woods real quick the example there's like a lot of South Arkansas prior to the farm bill and CRP, which started in the eighties, a lot of that was was cotton fields. Mm. It had been cotton fields for decades. Yeah, um, a lot of those pine trees were planted with federal assistance programs. Um, you know, so South Arkansas today looks vastly different than it did forty years ago. Yeah, yeah. and and we forget that. Yeah, um, it's a ama- you're right. It's generational short memory is very short. <laughs> yeah, um, and then. You know, here in the Ozarks, a good example, and I get this question all the time, and, you know, we can pick anywhere, but people like to say, it's like, well, you know, I usually shoot a bunch of quail in, let's just say Baxter County this time. We'll pick, you know, even more central Ozarks. Okay. You know, Baxter County looks exactly the same as it it always has. It's it's got woodlots and grass fields, and I used to shoot a bunch of quail there. Nothing's changed, and now there's no quail. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, when, when you're growing up and shooting quail in the 60s and 70s, yeah, it was woodlots and, and grass fields. But in the 60s and 70s, those, those woodlots were much thinner than they are now. Mm-hmm. 
they were still grazed or burned mm-hmm. on a probably more frequent basis and or I mean, let's be real, people still had to cut wood to heat their homes and, and to cook and do everything else. Like we actively used the landscape and we harvested mm-hmm. wood from that landscape. Right. And a lot of times that wasn't necessarily the big trees. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. so those woodlots were much thinner. Those woodlots had more sunlight hitting around. So the woods had more herbaceous cover and were actually usable space for quail, much better for deer and turkey. Um, and those grass fields, like I said, until whole scale conversion happened in the seventies and eighties, those pastures and hay fields were, were native grasses and wildflowers. So, mm-hmm. and it's hard sometimes to explain that because I'm a nerd. I'm a biologist. I like plants. <laughs> yeah. I like birds. Yeah. But like, I totally nerd out over native plants, native wildflowers. Like that's my thing. Right. And it's easy to see where people can can try to draw that that conclusion that nothing's changed. It's still woods and it's still grass fields, just like it always has been. Well, there's a big difference structurally for quail and habitat as for any wildlife. In yep, there was woods and there was grass fields, but those woods structure, structurally looked vastly different than they do now. Right. And all those grass fields used to be native grasses and weeds, and yeah. they were this tall still. We didn't have, we didn't have mowers and bush hogs, and we didn't, yeah. we didn't have as much cross fencing to graze everything down to to two inches, and mm-hmm. it wasn't fescue. Now, especially Baxter County, like we don't grow Bahia Bermuda, and Baxter County's fescue, right? Mm-hmm. So, those those woods are thicker. All the grass fields you see now are fescue, not not supportive of quail or wildlife habitat in general. Fescue fields aren't supportive of growing a lot of wildflowers or other things in those fields. There's there's non-native broadleaves that some, you know, people might put clover or something in there, but, you know, those are also not native. They're short-growing, not super beneficial for birds. Um, you know, some some pollinators and bees can use it, but generally general species. Um, so it's trees and, and grass now, but the, the quality and structure of the trees and grass now versus the trees and grass that are on the landscape 60 years ago is, is wholly different. It's changed completely. Changed completely, yeah, but, yeah. you know... In the in the in the mind and, and vision of the normal person that doesn't happen to be a wildlife biologist, that's just really hard to connect. Yeah, it's just trees and grass. Right. You're like, okay, well, it used to. It's always looked this way. This tree has been here forever. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, that's how. I mean, that's kind of. Yeah. That was my point earlier. Was yeah. like, I think about like some of these areas way out in the boonies, and it's like, surely no one has ever touched this, and it's it's always been this way, and I can't imagine it being any other way. Um, but like you said, we have such a short memory of like what happened before and how things have changed, uh, which is why it's like important to to have the right perspective and think about like what no like what did it actually look like before and like even going back to like what did the Indians do and the early settlers and and stuff mm-hmm. like that and then how that's changed and so someone who said like oh well, I used to find quail here in like the seventies or the eighties, well at that point basically what you're saying is that habitat was already on a decline in terms it was it was already suboptimal to what it had used by the 70s and 80s quail were hanging on on the edges gotcha we'll just we'll just say that they were hanging on where they could they were on their way down gotcha yep for sure and you know you guys coming from a fellow ozarki and myself like if you haven't read it like i highly encourage you guys to look in like the journals of henry schoolcraft if you haven't read those okay 
you know, the guy that took the we were two talking with truck. Andrew McNeese, who did uh, Bluffline Media, he did that the Buffalo River special. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that video. He did that. He, I think, he was talking about Henry Schoolcraft's yep. journals. So you should read those. Like, there's some great, you know, because I mean, the man basically got lost in the Ozarks for two months and <laughs> wandered around. And dang he wrote near, some dang near died a bunch of times, you know. But like, there's some great quotes in there from him, like, like. And I have these in some presentations about like what the landscape looked like and historically versus like what Arkansas looks like today. And the state's gorgeous, but I look at the state and see the potential for what it could look like. Yeah. And, you know, Leopold always said like the, the, the bad part of being a trained ecologist is that you're the one that gets to see all the scars and mars on the landscape mm. in a world that's sick and dying and nobody knows it. Mm. Um, except for you. Yeah. So like, you know, Schoolcraft wrote in his journal, like one of the hardest things to find in the middle of the Ozarks was, was firewood. Really? Yeah. Cause there was no, there was no dried wood on the ground. Right. So think about it. So like you had trees that were spaced 50 plus yards apart. Yeah. We had fires, the central Ozarks, the fire regime in the Ozark Highlands and the central Ozarks where there was some of that high flat ground too. And there was large, vast, prairies in the ozarks as well and a lot of savannah the fire return on that was like two years so if you have a fire that's ripping through the landscape every two years on average yeah there's not a lot of dead wood laying on the ground right no. like they literally had to burn buffalo chips in the ozarks to be able to have fires because there was no dead wood on the ground for them to collect and burn wow they had a hard time finding firewood to burn in the ozarks that's crazy right so like that almost seems illogical today, right? Like that doesn't even make sense. Yeah, exactly. And my head at first went, "Well, how how are they so you know perfectly spread out, and how are they just functioning in line with each other?" But you know, that's, I mean, to an extent, natural selection and and what um, Charles Darwin evolution. No, heck no. <laughs> uh, survival of the fittest. You know, oh, sure. species know how to work together and they know what's best for them. You know, just like um, quail, for instance, like they don't adapt to their surroundings here currently, but trees and grasses back then knew the proper distance from each other to, you know, grow. And and do you know where I'm getting at? I think I think so. Um, like, Like, it's not... You know, way back then, it's not like people were planting these trees and logging them and cutting them. So, so remember, there's actually very cool little like dioramas and things that you can do now to, to prove this concept out. What you're getting at, so like, okay, naturally stands stands in a fire adapted ecosystem that had common and frequent fire, forested or again, I don't like using the term forest because. What I would call forest, there's naturally should be very little of in the state of Arkansas. It's woodland. Okay. It's open woodland. For the most part, it should be open woodland. We don't see that today. But mm-hmm. um, if you've seen a video, and I could, we could probably find this later, but like there, now it's like fire, it's a forest fire science type like little project and grade schoolers can do this, but you can make a matchstick forest, right? And this is how we advocate for thinning forest now out west, even. Mm. If you put a bunch of mats, matchsticks, in the styrofoam really close to each other yeah. and light one, it spreads to all of them, right? Yes. But then you have the other side of the styrofoam where you put them all spaced out and you light one, that one burns up and none of the others catch fire. Yes, okay. Mm. So in a landscape that burned every two years gotcha. and, okay. all, all, and a lot of our natural fires occurred during droughty summers when if something caught fire, it would all torch, right? 
Mm-hmm. So if the trees are spaced out, hmm. the trees, one tree might torch, but it's not going to automatically okay. mean all that makes of them sense. burn up, right? So yeah. it's like dominoes. that type of stand structure naturally allowed those stands to survive. So if you had a stand that accidentally escaped fire for 10 or 20 years on that landscape historically, the next time they would get a fire that happened in a very droughty summer and you have all these trees growing growing close to each other during a drought, if a, if that would crown out all those trees would burn off and we would have a stand replacing fire. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. My mind was going to like a natural, um, you know, a natural event where, you know, naturally trees would be evenly spaced out and then trees that survive close, closely knit, like, like bamboo trees, you know, they're right on top mm-hmm. of each other. That's just how we know it and that's how they're supposed to thrive. And naturally, I, I was just getting at to where mature trees thrive spread out from one another. Um, they do in this but, ecosystem and it's largely because of yeah. those lands, those drivers. That's really cool. I've never thought those about drivers that within the system that create mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that just happens to be the the yeah. spacing that allows for survival of species within a fire That's adaptive cool. system. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm going to, I'll ask you a question. Um, in, just in general, at, at a high level, do you guys have estimates um for like how many quail are in the state currently at any one time or i know that's probably like a really hard question to answer but like a ballpark maybe give me some ranges like what are what are you thinking in terms of like where are we at now and and where were we uh 50 or 60 years ago like back in the 60s um there are there any numbers that's like we can say we think this is what it is so sadly, all we have is data based on like those roadside surveys that we have. So we can show historical trends. Okay. Based on the surveys that are done even through this day. Okay. There's there's no survey, there's no possible way on a statewide scale to have an actual estimation of, of the number of quail in the state. Okay. That is possible. So like with the amount of surveys that we do every year at our quail folk areas, like Pea Ridge, for example, the biologists go out and do all the spring surveys and then the fall covey call counts and then we flush them and count the birds per covey that we flush. We can plug that into a system and for that specific property Mm -hmm. that we have covered with survey points, we could give a pretty good estimate of how many quail exist on that property. Okay, yeah, using some kind of model that you guys have. Okay. So we, because I said, you know, quail are very highly studied, we have a pretty good equation that we can plug those into with variables and with corrective factors and stuff like that for weather and cloud cover and the days you did surveys wow. to get pretty close estimates for a given property on the number of quail based on the surveys and the mm. numbers that you get. That's so cool. But that <laughs> number so analyst. Cool. That's so cool, man. But my, that number doesn't exist guy, for the like state as a whole. Spinning. Uh-huh. Right. So that number doesn't exist as a whole. So like if you see the the trend line for quail, like I said that we've declined eighty seven percent, like that's a trend line based on we have a number of spring be- spring breeding bird counts in the state routes. They're twenty mile routes. I think there are certain number of mile routes. They're done every year in almost every county, and so based on those routes that have happened for the past sixty years, we know that the trend is we used to count this many birds on average per route in the state, and that's gone down. And we did hit like. Some states, like Missouri, hit hit a hit a low in the early or mid to late two thousands, and they have seen a little bit of an increase. Mm. Georgia has 
hit a low and seen a little bit of an increase. Really? Some of those states have been doing quail-specific work on a large-scale, like, private lands basis for 20-plus years. We're in year five in Arkansas right now. So, you know, numbers numbers kind of came down and hit a trend-level low yeah. for quail per route on our on our breeding bird routes um, 10 years ago-ish, and we've kind of been fluctuating around that same level with, you know, last year with that hard winter, we did this spring see a drop from yeah. our spring counts. I'm, I'm going to say, again, not at the statewide level. I haven't seen this year's data on those those routes, but okay. known, knowing the spring quail whistle counts that we've done on some private and public lands in the state, this year after that really harsh winter and all that snowfall and stuff yeah. last year, yeah, we saw a dip this spring. Extreme temps. But we really did see on some of those areas like a slight increase the past couple of years. Not, not huge, mm-hmm. but like... It's going like something. We know we can have an impact, especially yeah. on that local, on a local level, on a on a on a ten thousand acre WMA level, on a landscape level. We we've seen an increase in number of quail around Harold Alexander on private lands because we've targeted a lot of work there mm-hmm. in the last four years. Yeah, we're probably going to move our focus somewhere else now. Mm-hmm. Potentially, I'm not going to speak for you know, partners, but yeah. there's talk of trying to focus some a couple other places. On that landscape level, we can have a landscape level impact on quail, but it takes you and and multiple neighbors doing that and getting enough quality habitat or usable habitat within within a good sized landscape for you all to shared have success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless you're a landowner that owns ten thousand acres and you're willing to do quality quail habitat on half of it. Yeah. You're not gonna have your own personal sustainable population of quail. You just can't make that big of a dent on your own. Unless you're a huge landowner. Unless you have a ton of land. So the key to landowners out there is like, I, that's not to say at all like your 20-acre property, if you're a recreational landowner, if you have property that you want to manage for quail habitat, you absolutely should. Mm-hmm. And then it's, A, we plant native grasses and wildflowers. It looks really nice, mm-hmm. picturesque. Sit on the back porch, drink your coffee, look at your field, listen to birds. Just know that quail you've sing. got native grasses. Yeah. Just and take pride in the fact that you have native grasses. You're going to see more turkey. You're going to see more deer, more rabbits. Mm. Yeah. Wildlife in general are going to increase. Some beautiful forbs. Exactly. Going, off, going off that, I had one question written down, one more. Um, if you were to guess from where we are right now in Tawny Town, are you pretty familiar with this this part of the state? A little bit. I've been, you know, around Siloam and the, the state okay. battlefield stuff out here. And I, yeah. How many coveys of quail, quail would you say is in a 10-mile radius of us? Of here? Any? Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's really? there's quail within okay. a radius of here. Um, I'm trying to think. So, I, I mean, I know the general area. I'm there's in the whole the Weddington public area that's probably yeah. five miles from here. I don't so know if that would hold any. There there are okay. quail at Weddington. So, Weddington is actually one of the places the Forest Service owns that actually has native they have range grazing allotments on Weddington, right? And that's one of those interesting little areas like Weddington does prescribe fire like most of the Forest Service does mm-hmm. in the state, and they have some grazing allotments up there. A couple of them, I think, have been planted to natives, but it's not all of them. And just with the fire that they get when they burn the rest of that forested area off, um, most of that grazing allotment is native grasses. It's, mm. And some of it was planted, some of it wasn't. Mm-hmm. The biggest single field of prairie drop seed grass I've ever seen in my life is there on Weddington. Hmm. There are birds in that grazing. Okay. So there are, there are definitely quail at Weddington. There's, there's lots of quail out here around the Silent Springs area. Um, 
potentially on private lands. When you say lots of quail, is that a couple of coveys? A bunch of coveys? Well, I know private landowners that have done projects that have several coveys on their place. Okay. Like within 10 miles of here, that, that's a big landscape and it's hard to say, but knowing this landscape and at least it doesn't have to be native grasses to have quail. I can manage fescue pastures for quail. Okay. We just have to graze it really hard and then rest it and let it get weedy. The problem is everybody wants to mow it, but yeah. we just we just let the weeds go and knock the fescue back a little bit and get some bare dirt and weeds. I can manage that. We gotcha. can have at least usable quail habitat. So, so the, there are still quail that hang on in places like that that's not excellent habitat but usable habitat. Um, so there's there's quail in pockets scattered around. So here. your mind first went to native grasses around us before it went to quail to try and kind think of. about how much I'm is trying to think about what, what I've huh. seen in the landscape that I would that consider quality habitat. Yeah. That, that's, that's you're, cool. You're thinking you, you have to have the habitat before you can really have the quest. Yes, yes. Okay, I have more questions. We're we're probably going to have to break this up into like two parts because this is so good and I still have so many more questions, man. So many yeah. people from around here ask us about quail yeah. and we're like, we have no idea. Have no idea and it's so <laughs> interesting like the history of it all and, and all that stuff. But I, I had a question um, in terms of, you mentioned, so like if you're if you're a guy who owns 20 acres. Yep. And you wanted to say, I want to do my part and I want to do, I want to go through the program, have, um, have Quail Forever write me up a plan for managing my area and, and use all 20 acres to, to create an ideal habitat for quail. Within that, you, we talked about you have to have kind of like a collective of neighbors or people around you or at least yep. have like a surrounding somewhat habitat within a certain distance around you to kind right. of actually make it worth it. But I know that you can buy like, you can buy quail, right? Like you can go out and buy quail and, and maybe they're, you, maybe you'll tell me they're like domesticated and so they will never survive. But like, true. Is that something that's like, <laughs> I can manage this little piece, introduce quail and maybe see if they'll take off and live for a couple of years before they all disappear. Or like, <laughs> is that just a waste of time? So trying to place birds on the landscape is, that money is vastly better spent doing more habitat work or okay. using that money to continue. So the hard part about quail habitat management or really native habitat management in general is it's not a one and done thing. Even if we convert that 20 acre fescue field to native grasses and forbs and the forbs is the more important part. You don't want too much grass. We have to burn that every two years mm. or we have to do something to every, like, cause if we let it go three years, it gets really thick and rank and you have a lot of thatch on the ground Deer and turkey can still use it, but it's the quail will move off if it's too thick. So we have to burn it. So so you actually have to burn. There's too. constant man. Well, Cause, at cause least they're basically some kind of hovering above the dirt, right? At that at that point, if there's so much just grass beat down, then right. So the best way that I found to describe this to people is because you've probably walked through fields like this, and and whether you're in Kansas pheasant and quail hunting or deer hunting or, or anywhere here. If you can walk across a grass field and the bottom of your shoe never once touches bare dirt, that is not quail habitat. Ah, hmm. okay. So if there's too much thatch on the ground from last year's dead grass that's laid over now and you're yeah. stepping on top of grass the whole way, no longer quail habitat. Mm, okay. Or at least not for brood rearing. And if they can't rear their broods there, you're not going to have quail hanging around it's there. It's not sustainable. They could nest in the edge of that stuff, but they have to have more open space. So um, fire is the best way for us to manage natural landscapes for quail um we can do it with other things we can do it with 
with disking, but just any other thing that we try to recommend, like if we did like light disking to set back that grass and get some more bare dirt, and then the native stuff will come back. The whole point is to, to maintain that wildflowers and grass stand. But disking or herbicide applications to set the grasses back or mowing, anything like that, the whole intention is we're trying to mimic what we would get from a burn without doing a burn. Right. And none of those things are as good as a burn. So just do the burn. <laughs> so fire's great. And again, you know, People can be scared of fire, but we have a habitat specialist burn crew that's stationed in Russellville, mm-hmm. covers all of North, all of the Ozarks in Arkansas. We have a crew that can come out and help you or do your burn for you as long as you can put fire lines in. So there's assistance out there to get that burning done. What does you that can, mean? Put it, putting fire lines in. Oh, so like a disc line around the perimeter of your field and a mode line oh, okay. inside that. So, so. You can contain the fire. Gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, fire, getting, getting fire rid, break. Getting rid of the fuel so that it can't, exactly. can't go beyond. Fire break is just a, a, a bare line, ideally to bare mineral soil, so we can burn off of that so we can contain that fire within the landscape we want it in. Okay. So we have we have a crew that's in the state that the, their whole goal is to go out and burn private lands to improve habitat every day they possibly can. So like the past month when we've had all these burn bans on, they've just been anxiously itching to go. Um, we usually start burning every year in, in early July. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, last year that crew did at least one burn every month of the year. But mm-hmm. that crew, that crew of five people last year completed 75 burn operations. Wow. Which is amazingly good for a single single crew. These are very dedicated people that love what they do. Yeah. And they're there to help landowners. So. We have that potential. So talk, landowners should absolutely talk to their local Quail Forever yeah. farm biologist if they have one, and they can find that contact info on our website or if you're already working with them or with your game and fish private lands biologist, they can get you in touch. You know, they can contact the burn crew and get them set up to come help you with burning on your property if you need it. Yeah. Or there's cost share programs and you can pay a contractor to come out and do it for you too. Yeah, okay. I have another question. Sure. Um, what about we talk about burning, and I, I imagine it's burning is good overall. We're saying burning is a good thing, but in general, are there times of the year that you don't want to burn because there are nests and eggs on the ground? Another good topic that comes up a lot, right? I, I hear this all the time, and I think yeah, I hear this especially question, with those, Kyle. especially with those turkey, hunters. the turkey hunters, man. They're like, <laughs> "Why are you burning in the like mid season or right. right before season and all this stuff?" Like, it it feels like a controversial topic. So, fire is put on the landscape in a very technical and thought out way. Okay, right? We're managers, fire managers, biologists are not putting fire on the landscape willy nilly, just burning stuff. When when we're burning. At different times of the year, it's for a very specific reason. And even for turkey. So, you know, a lot of times when people are complaining or mentioning that is potential issue with fire and turkeys while they're nesting in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, turkeys do start nest initiation earlier than quail. Um, turkeys have a very specific, and I know, I'm sure Jeremy talked about this to some degree, turkeys have a very specific habitat preference for where they will nest in woodlands or forested systems. Mm-hmm. Turkeys are also a grassland nester too. Mm-hmm. I, I think turkeys would prefer to nest in in open native grasslands. Um, I've found a lot of turkey nests in open native grass fields, similar to quail. Like they they kind of share right. an ideal habitat, right? And it you know as as you go if you go into Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, 
Nebraska, the Dakotas turkey hunting. Mm-hmm. They're grassland nesting birds out there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, here we do get a lot of turkey nests in woods, but turkeys, there's a threshold at which we have too much brush and understory in the woods, and turkeys won't nest in that anymore. They want to be able to see far enough to feel comfortable that they're seeing predators that would approach them, right? Yeah, right. When we use prescribed burning, we are targeting those places that need fire to set back that. A lot of times, most of the burning we do in this state is either to set back grasses that are too thick or to set back woody, small woody encroachment, whether it's in open fields or small woody stems in woods, where the woods are thicker than they should be with small woody stems. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those burns we're doing in the spring that might be during turkey nesting, could there be some nests in those thicker stands of woods that we're trying to burn off because we have too many small stem tree stems in it? Sure, there's a few, but mm-hmm. the vast majority of turkeys are selecting against that habitat structure. They're going to a more open stand that was probably burned last year. Uh, That's okay. where they're going to be doing most of their nesting. Okay. Turkeys move around the landscape and will nest where the habitat preference, just like quail. Quail prefer to nest in native grass fields that were either burned or grazed the year before. Yeah. So you're saying they don't want it too thick. They don't want it too thin. So where we're burning in the spring for turkeys, it's in stands that probably don't have a lot of turkey nests Mm -hmm. in those woods because they're thick and they need that fire to manage it to get it back to quality turkey nesting habitat. Mm -hmm. Same thing with quail. If we're burning, so most quail nesting happens in nest initiation, May, early May maybe. And that's when they start nest initiation, laying eggs. And then they start sitting on it, incubating. Most, the average hatch date for for quail nests, according to the new research out of Southwest Missouri for this part of the world, somewhere around early to mid July, or actually late July, but quail can start hatching nests in June. Okay. There will be a a nest in June and then kind of a peak in July, a dip, a little peak in August, and then another peak in September. But quail will nest from May, June, all the way through October. Okay, and it um, it sounds like it's like about a month incubation period to hatch. Yeah, twenty eight days. Okay, so same thing. If we're burning, quail are going to select for nesting locations that could be a little bit thicker grass to cover. But we're shooting for habitat where we have grass and forbs. The ideal nesting location for quail is where that hen, our male, can get off the nest with his newly hatched chicks, step out of the nest, and they're in an open grass and forb stand with lots of forbs and broadleafs and lots of insects, and they can walk around and start eating. Where we're burning things, especially in the summer, so if we're burning burning native grasslands in June, July, and August, we are targeting those grasslands where the grass is really, really thick, and we burn that time of year to set those grasses back, Mm -hmm. and where we have a lot of tree, brush, and woody encroachment, whether there's sweet gum or cedar, stuff like that, in those native grasslands. So again, we're we're burning areas at the time of the year during quail nesting that are not quality nesting mm-hmm. habitat. So mm-hmm. could there be a few nests in there? Sure. Yeah, but the vast maybe. majority of those nests are going to be probably in the field on that property that we burned last year. Gotcha. They're going to be nesting here, and okay. raising chicks here. Okay. This is too thick for them. Gotcha. That's where we're burning. So in, in general, maybe the, the theory is, yes, we may burn a few. Mm-hmm. We may burn off a few. But in general, it's worth it because the the maybe the amount of of nests and clutches that will be laid next year on this specific piece of land will offset whatever we burned in that year because, and not only for just that year, but now we've made this habitat ideal for another one, two, three Three years. years, Absolutely. Yep. That's, that's really the case. It's, it's, uh, 
totally offset. And the few that we might impact is minimal to no impact on the population as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the positive impacts of that management activity for the next two to three years mm-hmm. vastly outweighs any potential direct negatives from a few nests that we might burn up. Yeah. Anytime you do fire, there's going to be winners and losers. Yeah. There's going to be things that are impacted. Yeah. That's just normal and natural. And it's hard for it's hard sometimes to acknowledge and accept that. Um and again, that's why we try not to. And and there's differences, you know, some of the some of the discussion about the size of the burns that we do too, right? Um, if we burn stuff in the dormant season, so like November through January, everything's dry and crispy. If you light the woods or an open field on fire, pretty much the whole thing's going to be black. You will burn up everything that's burnable in that unit. Yeah, because right? there's so much fuel on the ground. All those leaves have now dropped. And right, exactly. And a ton of fuel. If it's during some part of the growing season, I don't necessarily advocate for a ton of spring burning in the woods. I would rather burn those in the fall, like October, right after a leaf off. But especially our native grasslands, um, most of the reasons we need to burn is to fight tree encroachment and reduce native grass dominance and increase forbs. The best time to do that is burning late summer and early fall. And when we burn that time of year, stuff's green. Well, our our native vegetation is adapted in a way that I can burn a native grass field when it's green and it will it will light up it will light on fire and it will burn perfectly fine. Really? But you're going to have cover left out there and there will be patches and areas that don't burn mm-hmm. and it'll move across the landscape. Um I like the idea of doing more growing season burns, especially late growing season burns, and allowing that fire to make its own selections. And if there's going to be patches that don't burn, great. We leave those. I'm not going to go in and burn those out. Yeah. And you'll have, you know, patches of refugia. So I think that's a way to work work that system. If we do large, like the type of large landscape level burning that say the Forest Service does in the Ozarks, if, if we have a 20,000 acre burn unit, a lot of times they're lighting it, and that might burn for several days, but there's patches within there that don't burn, and they don't go back in there and find that and burn out the whole thing. Right. Or we have the opportunity to allow that to not burn the whole thing and be okay with that, and that's that's where we need to be, and that allows for that refuge area within those larger burn units so we're not burning off the entire thing. And you know, for, for small landowners, if you, if you own a small property, we do that through human manipulation. We might have, if you have a 20-acre field, we'll, we'll split that in half and only burn half of it at a time, right? Okay. Yeah. Especially if, if you can't control your neighbors and, and if you don't have a lot of habitat around you, you don't want to burn off your entirety of your personal habitat, and that's a bit different. Yeah. But again, if we did it in the summer, there might be a good chunk of that that doesn't burn. Don't go out and burn the rest of it. Just leave it be, and it's fine. Like that patchy mesic burn on the landscape is more natural and we can mitigate for for some of those yeah like effects in, in that way as well. Gotcha. Okay, man, this is also interesting. Um, but yeah, as a landowner, like the key is like every acre counts. Every landowner should, if you want to do quail habitat, don't let the size of your property keep you from doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, again, when I say quail habitat, I'm talking about managing for quality natural ecosystems that occurred on your property. If you have a property that's on a south slope in the Ozarks and it should be open woodland, and maybe you have some rocky outcrops that should be glades, let's thin those trees out, let's start burning it, let's manage that for open woodlands and glades. You're going to see vastly more use from turkey, deer, quail, bears. They're all going to love that type of system, but do your property, do what you can, 
absolutely talk to your neighbors, mm-hmm. encourage them to do the same thing. Yeah. It's going to improve. It's going to improve your entire landscape neighborhood area yeah. for all wildlife and everybody's going to be happier. And that's how we get wins on a local level. And that's what happened with some of these private lands, quail folklores we have. We had collective groups of people that talked to their neighbors and we had a bunch of people that got excited and started doing good wildlife management. And it was noticeable on the landscape enough to where like, okay, that's great. Let's draw a buff around those people mm-hmm. and just keep building on it. That's, that's so what cool. we need to do. That's so cool. That's where you really start to like have the domino effect where like you Absolutely. get people together and now they, they're engaging their neighbors and their neighbors and you're, you're going off of that and you're targeting that area. That's where you really start to see the, the impact. Yep. Absolutely. Man, that is so cool. And there's places where, you know, and so interesting here in Arkansas, we have so many different ecosystems, even here in what we would call the, the Ozarks, like this house is sitting on what was once historically prairie. Yeah. And faded into savannah, faded into woodland in the Ozarks, and again, pocket prairie, stuff like that. The central Ozarks has its own pine stands. You know, shortleaf pine should be a dominant tree on our south and west slopes in the Ozarks. Gorgeous native pine tree species. I love managing far in the Ozarks. Mm. Uh, very adapted to fire, like most pine trees are, especially our southeastern pines. Um, that's that should be a, a large component of this landscape. Post oaks and, and shortleaf pine, and those grew in open stand structures. Um, so we have pine stands that we could manage for in the Ozarks. Pine management in South Arkansas is. Um, a bit different and totally different type of thing. Mm-hmm. The management that we do for quail in the large grassland systems of the Arkansas River Valley is is interesting. You know, the single best population of quail we have left in the state of Arkansas is on Fort Chaffee. Really? By far. Okay. So that Fort Chaffee's been a fort for a long time. Yeah. And it's had bombing and firing ranges for a very long time. That's probably, that is for sure the site in this state that has the longest continual fire use history on it of anywhere in the state. And the amount, I mean, the vast majority of that base is still native prairie mm-hmm. and savannah and woodland. There's some areas that outside of what they have is their firing range zone that hasn't gotten as much fire and it's grown up a little bit thicker, but most of that area is savannah and prairie mm-hmm. and it, there's tons of quail on it. So if you want to go see some quail, head down to Fort Chaffee. Yep, and you know there's special regulations you have to follow to to get your permit to get on base, and you can hunt that there and stuff like that, and follow the compartments. I I have I've gotten my permit, but I've still not gone hunting there. It's a little bit intimidating. Okay. Um, to me anyway. I mean, there's people that go hunt there every year. You could probably reach out to a local community, yeah, of hunters and try to you know get somebody to assist you to help you out. But Fort Chaffee has we we know that, and I you know the. The previous state quail biologist for game and fish always said that, and I and I very aware of that too. That that is the single best population, like landscape level population of quail left in the state. Yeah, um, the pine bluestem area down south of Waldron on the Forest Service huge ecosystem restoration project that they did in the name of um, red cockaded woodpeckers, mm-hmm. but thin pines and burn every other year, and you get quail, and that's. That's the formula. Pretty much. I mean, and those pines could be a little bit thinner. If we wanted to target it for quail, I would thin them a little bit more. Yeah. Most, of that, most of those stands are around 70 basal area. I would love to see them at like 50. Okay. And if we had those stands at like 50 and burned every other year, there'd be tons of quail on it. But as it stands right now, like you can go out there and find find quail. Yeah. 
Golly. Um, and there's places on the Ozark National Forest, they've done some ecosystem restoration projects with like post oak woodland and savannah areas. Not quite as big a scale, but close, you know, 40 to 60,000 acres. There's quail. Find areas where the Forest Service is really doing a good job of thinning timber and incorporating burning. Right. And, and you're going to find quail and in you're those areas. Yeah. Yep. And, and then, you know, most people just don't get out and look for them anymore. Yeah. Well, you, you kind of just expect not to find them. And, right. And, and I think, too, like, it, it's, I'm just thinking about, like, the, the entire conversation we've just had. And I love how we, we were able to talk for quail for about just over two hours. And we didn't once talk about, all like, how to actually hunt quail, right? Oh, like, sure. we've just talked about management, which is, well, you, could, you could go a whole other topic on actually hunting quail yeah. and, and that, stuff like that's that. That's what I've learned about hearing you talk is, you're, well, you are a quail expert. But it's, it feels like you're more of a land expert and a and a you know native species. And I consider myself I I, I consider myself an ecologist. Like yeah. ecologist. people refer okay, to us yeah. as wildlife biologists. Land like, expert ecologist. You know, like, went to school for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> These guys keep making up words over here. Yeah. No. 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 That's good. It's late. That's good. It's past my bedtime. <laughs> oh, for sure. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I consider myself an ecologist. And again, like for most places, like. Why would we think that we should manage it for anything different than what it was for the past ten thousand years yeah. to maximize the wildlife potential of this of this place we're in now? Yeah, right. So yeah, managing for the native ecosystems that were here, and the great part is across the Ozarks for the most part, tons of potential for restoring those landscapes to look like what across most of the Ozarks. There are instances where. You might have a single individual property that was a homestead for a long time, mm-hmm. and maybe they did have a ton of like hogs and cattle on it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they graze it really hard. If we thin trees and burn, and we get a bunch of buckbrush and stuff back, I could tell you pretty quickly if your property has been kind of abused in the past. Doesn't mean we can't get a quail back there. It's just going to respond differently to management. Mm-hmm. But there's there's tons of places in the Ozarks where if we thin trees, if we take out, uh, I'm going to hurt some feelings here. We need to kill more red oaks in the Ozarks. Uh-oh. Red oaks should not exist on south and west facing slopes above, you know, the creek area. Uh, our south and west slopes in the Ozarks should be post oak, maybe some black oak, blackjack at the ridges, and shortleaf pine. So forest meso- woodland mesification is is our big issue here with lack of fire. We have those species that don't like burning that used to occur like on north and east slopes where the fires have been cooler because they don't get direct sunlight on those slopes. Yeah. So those slopes are usually less rocky, a little more soil, cooler, different tree species. And as you cross a ridge, you, you know, you've seen post oak, white oak, like post oak mm-hmm. stands, and you cross over the ridge on a north slope and all of a sudden you you have northern and southern red oaks. You have white oaks on the mid slope. You have a lot more dogwoods and stuff like that. And it, that would be more of a, what I would call a, an actual forest setting mm-hmm. that had a, a mature canopy with a mature mid-story of smaller tree species. Yeah. Our south and west slopes. So without fire, those species that used to only occur along our creeks and on those north slopes invaded those south and west slopes because they can't tolerate hot fires like those south and west slope species can. And it's called mesification because as we get more of those trees growing in there, you get more shade on the ground and you get more shade-loving species that can grow in there, which is why we have a bunch of black oaks and red oaks growing on our south and west slopes. That's why we have hickory, elm, maple, cedar. Cedar occurred on cliffs and rock outcrops where it couldn't get touched by fire. Right. Cedar is 
covering our landscape. Yeah, it's and, and it's something that you don't even recognize, but the Ozarks is absolutely filled in and invaded with cedar trees. Yeah, even or even just anywhere in our woods. Yeah, but open fields especially too. And cedars are main issue. Like when we get over into our grassland areas mm-hmm. and this Great Plains are part of the country too. But cedars are a huge problem. But elms, hickory, maple, sweet gum. Oh, I could. Are those the ones that have like the, the spiky gumballs? little yeah. gumballs? Oh man! Yeah, I mean, and, you know, that's just a gumball. That's a species yeah. that's, that's just what I called them too. Yeah, yeah, that that species just in is a it's an early successional field invader. It grows well. It grows quickly. It's a you know softer wood species, but like it should occur down in low wetland areas. That young young sweet gums do not tolerate fire. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't occur in our uplands like that, but they do now because of the lack of fire. Same with yeah. maples, elms, stuff like that. So gotcha. that mesification of our woodlands has encouraged all these tree species that shouldn't occur in our uplands to now grow there. Yeah, And then we get more shade and canopy cover, which just changes everything. And now we have issues with, you know, without fire and with all that shade, white oaks and post oaks don't regenerate under shade. Red oaks do mm-hmm. and elms and maples do. So even the the forest regeneration we're getting now without thinning and burning is slowly changing over to species that shouldn't occur on that site naturally with fire. We're not quite there yet. Yeah. The stands across the Ozarks now, again, like I was saying, have huge potential for restoration. If we go in there, we can thin out all those species, those those mesic species that shouldn't occur on these dry sites, hack and squirt, cut, harvest. I mean... If you can, can find somebody that's willing to harvest those hardwoods for a mill or something, yeah, get paid for it, great, fantastic. If yeah. we can't, if you're not near a mill, you know, there's cost share programs to help pay for, for timber stand improvement to remove those things that shouldn't be there. That's what and I we're going to leave your nice big white oaks and post oaks and stuff like that, but yeah. hickories, maples, elms, all these things on those specific sites, not, not across all of our woods. You know, we write a different prescription for those north and east slopes than we do south and west, mm-hmm. but everything's specific to the slope it's on the depth of the soil, the, the, the aspect of that slope and where Damn. is that on the landscape? What a science. It's amazing. Yeah. That's crazy. I, I need to have you back on for an ecology. <laughs> just an ecology discussion. Just, yeah. Just go in. Cause I, mean, I could talk for an hour about yuccas. <laughs> I think we could talk for six hours <laughs> oh my gosh, with you. Man. That's hilarious. I, I mean, you're so knowledgeable and, yeah, that's, and this is, this is slowly becoming one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> yeah. Just because well, thank you. who thought that, Talking about quail would lead to. I know. Talking about the Indians and how we more things. You know. Anyways, it's (laughs) it's incredible. We we really appreciate your time. And 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 one one last thing I just wanted to mention, like all this stuff you you mentioned, you'll write a plan, and then like, the crazy part to me is like, what I'm hearing is you'll pay for it, right? Like, well, so the assistance of the farm biologists that work for Quail Forever are the game and fish private lands biologists. Yeah, that's all free assistance. Yeah, we will help you find programs that will that you can apply for and they're not guaranteed but you can you put in an application and if you're doing a good project you have a good chance of getting yeah. funded yeah but we'll help that's you huge. find those programs to get cost share assistance to help pay for those things yeah man that's so we cool. have a burn crew that can come help you complete your burns on your property yeah it's just like wetlands you know there's a w- lot yeah there's a ton of buy-in from from the state agency from game and fish there's a ton of buy-in from from other state agencies, the Natural Heritage Commission manages a lot of land in the state on its own, and they do a fantastic job of managing for ecosystem restoration. A lot of NHC properties have quail on them too. Mm-hmm. Most of them are enrolled in the WMA system. Mm-hmm. Hint, hint. Uh, but the Forest Service is doing a lot of good work. 
Natural Resources Conservation Service totally bought in on on this restoration. Our our big national initiative for working lands for wildlife for quail is just getting bigger. We're getting more and more money for that every year mm-hmm. to put bodies on the ground to help landowners and for actual financial assistance for the program to pay for those cost share projects. Yeah. So there's a lot of buy-in from a lot of partners. The time is now mm-hmm. for for Arkansas and everybody else in the quail range to make this happen. And we just we just need landowners that want to do this to to reach out and contact us so we know we can come work with you and help you do it. You got my vote, man. Ryan Diener, make Arkansas great again. <laughs> Quail populations for the future, they're going to be good. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for for coming on. I man, this this has been such a educational and informative uh, conversation. I seriously like like you said, Adam. This has been one of my favorite episodes. Um, you don't have to use that slogan if you ever do run for office. But oh, it's funny. I've 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 said stuff like that before to people. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. I'm we're, not going to rule it out. Yeah, we we appreciate your time, man, and, and um, thank you for for being so generous with your time and, and yeah. with your knowledge. And oh, my pleasure. So, I enjoy talking about this stuff. So yeah, we can tell. We can tell. Yeah, and we enjoy listening. So yeah. So thank you so much uh, to our listeners. If you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure you let us know. Share it with a buddy. Share it on social media. And if you really liked it, leave us a five-star rating or review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is presented by Inland Outdoors, hosted by Kyle Veet, produced by Daniel Matthews, and co-hosted by Kyle Plunkett, Adam Treese, and Josh Launch. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star rating, a review, and sharing it with someone in the Ozarks. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.